pain has reached epidemic proportions in America. I'm Dr. Paul Christo. This is Aches and Gains. Dr. Paul Christo is one of America's leading experts on relieving pain. He's board-certified, Harvard-trained, and a pain medicine specialist at Johns Hopkins. U.S. News and World Report ranks him as a top doctor and among the top 1% in the nation for pain management. Becker's Review selected him as one of the 70 best pain management physicians in America. He's listed as a super doctor for the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Northern Virginia area. Aches and Gains is a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. The human impact is real. Older adults, children, and even infants struggle to cope with pain. But there's hope, and there are treatments that can ease pain and suffering. The show offers compelling stories about people who've found relief. We share cutting-edge treatments from contributing experts, and we offer ways to help people cope with their pain. Welcome to part two of The Pain of Torture. The very word torture conveys the stark reality of pain, pain inflicted intentionally upon another human being. Torture is not restricted to one ethnic, national, or geographic group. In fact, it's widely practiced throughout the world. Methods of inflicting pain can be physical, psychological, and sexual. Sadly, it's well known that torture can cause long-standing damage to the body and the mind. Studies show a high prevalence of persistent pain in torture survivors, as high as 83%. Our program this week traces some of the cruelties suffered by victims all over the world. We'll hear the harrowing experiences of author Marina Namat, who endured painful foot lashings, a broken wrist, and narrowly escaped a death sentence while she was imprisoned in Iran. Then Dr. Raman Asghari of the Mount Sinai School of Medicine will help us understand this dark phenomenon and guide us through his efforts to heal those victims he's been able to reach. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, Endo Pharmaceuticals, Pentec Health, and Boston Scientific. For live online listening to Aches and Gains, please go to paulchristomd.com. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Christo, especially for upcoming shows, please email him at achesandgains at gmail.com. That's achesandgains at gmail.com. Dr. Raman Asghari has been evaluating torture survivors from all over the world. He's worked in human rights clinics both at the Montefiore Medical Center and the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City. In fact, he founded and directed the Mount Sinai Human Rights Program. Dr. Asghari, welcome back to Aches and Gains. Thank you. Glad to be here. Last time, we concentrated on the physical brutality of torture and lifelong pain that often follows along the lines of greater than 80%. Today, I'd like to take a closer look at the psychological damage that occurs in torture survivors. What's the ultimate consequence of torture? The purpose of torture is really to inflict pain on people's soul. The body is not that important. You know, so the whole idea of the torture really is to control people and say, you know, we can do whatever we want. And that physical kind of part of it that you can see is a reminder that, you know, we can, we can do a lot of things and you control your life. And people really carry that with themselves through the life, this psychological pain. Yes, it, it seems like the point of torture really is to use pain to break somebody's spirit, rob them of their humanity, and control them. Raman, how effective is the pain of physical torture in getting the desired result? People actually interview the torturers. The people actually do the torture, and there's some data about it. It's not really effective, you know? It's not. People really give you information, whatever you want to hear. 
because they want to really get out of that pain. And so there is no direct link between, you know, actually physically or psychologically torture someone and get the right information. Most of those information are incorrect. That's surprising. I didn't realize that. Are certain methods of torture more painful than others and more likely to cause chronic pain? The sexual trauma and sexual torture are, are significant. The, uh, I mean, I had people who have been, they have been shot at and, you know, and they, they had bullet scars and that uh, caused significant amount of trauma to the, to the tissue and the body part. But in general, the blunt trauma really caused a chronic aching pain that they always carry. It kind of moves around and it's not as specific. Yes, this is exactly what our other guest, Marina Namat, described. That is, chronic pain from having had her feet whipped with an electrical cable in prison. Uh, Raman, what about other forms of inflicting pain, like penetrating trauma? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, like removing the nails has been significantly painful. So basically, they pull out the nails, or they basically nail down uh, fingers, and the crush injuries to you know, fingertips and toes. Those are because we have a lot of, obviously, sensory kind of receptors in those areas that are significantly painful. You're absolutely right. Electrical shock is very, very painful. And, and Dr. Asghari, in those people that you've seen who've endured traumatic removal of, of nails, for example, and penetrating trauma and electrical torture, uh, do you typically see that they suffer from chronic pain? Sure. I mean, the, uh, first of all, you know, there's going to be significant deformity caused after the injury, and that kind of continuously caused them not to be able to use their fingers or walk properly, and, and every time that they really uh, want to do something a little bit different from the usual and using their hands or, or foots, they have significant pain. But the, the crush injuries on the fingers and the toes are... Uh, significantly painful and they cause chronic pain. Yes, and uh, the most common complaints of torture survivors are headache and just generalized musculoskeletal pain. When we come back, we'll talk to Dr. Asghari about the forms of torture that the United States engages in. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, the global leader in medical technology, alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life for millions of people around the world. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Christo, especially for upcoming shows, please email him at achesandgains at gmail.com. That's achesandgains at gmail.com. Raman, what forms of torture does the United States participate in? I don't know really what is common, but I, you know, because I don't really have that information necessarily about what the prevalence of it. But, uh, you know, obviously the, the blunt trauma and, 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 you know, beating and those kind of things. And what, what about waterboarding? Yeah, I mean, waterboarding basically means the suffocation, the wet suffocation. So either, you know, they basically there's a bowl of water and they put your head, they keep your head under it for a long time. And, or it could be just a wet towel, kind of wrap it around your head and they basically hold it so you cannot breathe. Or it could be even dry suffocation, using a pillow or using sheets or those kind of things. And does uh, waterboarding or, or effectively asphyxiation produce long-lasting pain in your experience? You know, not really. I mean, the problem with this, you know, it caused pulmonary edema. And, you know, the sense of that you're going to really kind of die or drown 
And then there is no really any anything afterward that you can document. Even it's very difficult to document anything if you're doing an X-ray or MRI or anything like that after four weeks. Mm-hmm. And let's move now to psychological torture, which involves direct threats to the victims' relatives, uh, sensory deprivation, mock executions, or uh, exposure to bright lights, and so on. Uh, Doctor Asgari. Does psychological torture result in chronic pain? Uh, they do definitely chronic pain syndrome. The prime example really is headache. There are a wide range of psychological tortures in Abu Ghraib, in, um, in the prison and in, in Iraq. Strip naked people and putting together, like men together, and then using a human excrement and then kind of rub, rub those on their face, on their body part, defecating and urinating in the same cell when four or five people are living together leaving people with dead bodies their cell for days, making actually people to torture other comrades and witnessing other people's torture or hearing about other people's torture, putting people on gunpoint and simulation executions. And these are the forms that they get more creative, this form of psychological torture, as just we go ahead over time. You know, it's striking that that over 80% of torture survivors suffer from chronic pain, and I'm sure that many listeners are appalled uh, by the vast number of ways that pain can be inflicted upon somebody, both physically and psychologically. You know, we, we sometimes see the physical remnants, but the psychological damage may not be so obvious. And let's talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and how common it is. Somewhere between 30 to 70% of them they experience that. The problem with that is that, you know, the PTSD criteria is not culturally sensitive. So my my expert opinion is that a lot of time we don't pick it up because it's not culturally sensitive, you know. Let's talk about some of the common symptoms of PTSD and torture survivors. Well, in general, most of them, what they have is uh, a lot of recurrent thoughts, nightmares, and recollections, and it's normally triggered by usual, you know, day-to-day contact, and they don't have control over it, and then it comes... And another form of uh, another part of the criteria is avoidance that they have, for example, you know, and when they see someone with a military uniform and they have to avoid it or they cannot even watch a movie that has got any form of violence in it. Dr. Asgari, in your experience, what are the more beneficial ways that we can treat PTSD? Obviously, psychotherapy is is a way to do a lot of counseling, one-to-one counseling, community support group. Uh, it seems for them, at least they think, it's more effective way. And how about medications, Raman, like the antidepressants and, and specifically the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the SSRIs, in torture survivors? We use that for PTSD, but I, for the survivors of torture, I have absolutely no data about it. Okay, to summarize, psychotherapy counseling and community support groups are really quite effective then in treating PTSD in torture survivors. And unfortunately, although SSRIs, which are antidepressants, are shown to be quite helpful in treating PTSD in general, we really don't have specific information about whether they're effective in treating uh, PTSD in torture survivors. And before we close, what message would you like to leave us with? For the audience, uh, it's just important for them to know that the history of abuse and torture, it's a risk factor for chronic pain. So, you know, they can definitely direct people who have chronic pain to seek care. Dr. Osgari, thank you so much for joining us today on Aches and Gains. Sure. Up next is our continued discussion with Marina Namat, who suffered from foot torture during two years of prison in Iran. 
I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and this is Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Pentech Health, one of the nation's largest pharmacy and nursing companies, dedicated solely to providing in-home care for patients with implanted pumps used for the treatment of severe pain or spasticity. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Welcome back. Marina Namat is a survivor of torture by the government of Iran. She's written two best-selling books about her experiences, Prisoner of Tehran and After Tehran, A Life Reclaimed. Now making her home in Canada with her family, she's been a guest speaker in support of torture survivors at many universities and conferences around the world. Marina, welcome back to Aches and Gains. And tell us, what do you do to help control the chronic pain in your feet? I travel a lot. I wear uh, those uh, special stockings that are for varicose veins. You know, so I have found that they helped a little bit. And then um, usually if I have to be on a very long flight, I will try to be either in the exit row or I will try to be in first class because then I can put my feet up. And that helps a lot as well. I just simply cannot stand for a long time. I am also allergic to a lot of painkillers. So what I do is instead of that, I try not to be in a situation where my feet would hurt so much that I would need to take, take a painkiller. You know, it's hard to imagine the, the psychological pain that you suffered. And, and Marina, how do you endure that? I think when I was released from prison, I was probably suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. It was very important for me to put it all behind me and um, have a new life. I think I created a fictional self for, my, for myself that in which, in, in a scenario that I was normal, I had never been tortured, I had never been raped, I had never, none of that had happened. And um, I just tried to be normal. And when you're trying to do that, you have to put a lot of effort into it in the sense that you have to make it real for yourself. So then what you do is you don't allow yourself to look back at the memory. So any pain I had or any problem I had, I just dealt with it in the moment. Okay, my feet hurt. So, okay. So now, you know, I have to deal with it. So um, that was, that was so for many years, that was the case. And then after I gradually started to deal with what had happened, um, I think, you know, I had lived with it for such a long time by then that it had become almost a part of who I am. So no, it doesn't take me back uh, to the to the memory or to the experience. What took me back was writing about it. That really took me back, but not the pain itself. Uh, Marina, the pain must have been excruciating. I mean, how did you get through it? There was nothing I could do. I was just tied up and they were beating me. So I didn't have an option. I didn't have a choice. I wish I did. I didn't. And once the pain ends, it's, you know, they stop eating you, right? So it leaves this really comfortable emptiness behind it that the pain is basically gone. Well, of course, there is still some pain, but I mean, compared to what it was, it is not that explosive uh, being dissected feeling anymore. So there is relief after that. And once you are in that relief and you realize that the pain is over, I think the point of survival after that is to somehow manage to lose, not to lose hope and to believe that you're human and that the nightmare will end and that this whole thing will end and that you will go home one day and that you will be normal. Mm, I, I can't imagine. When we come back from the break, we'll talk to Marina about what links she would have gone to to escape the torture. 
I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Endo Pharmaceuticals, a U.S.-based specialty healthcare solutions company that delivers innovative diagnostics, drugs, devices, and clinical data to meet the needs of patients in areas such as pain, urology, oncology, and endocrinology. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Welcome back. Marina, can you tell us to what lengths you would have gone to escape the torture? Well, I discovered very quickly when they were beating me that if I had had the information they were asking me, I would have given it to them with whipped cream on top. The devil had appeared and had offered me to, you know, if I sell him my soul, uh, he would get me out of there, back home, I would have sold him my soul. Anything, anything in this world to get out of that room, I would have done. And that was not a pleasant discovery. Nobody wants to discover that about themselves. So um, I think living with that was, in a lot of ways, one of the most difficult aspects. And the other was when they threatened my family. So that was very hard that it could be because of me that my family that are now in danger. Yeah. Let's talk about the psychological impact on your life after the incident. Well, for many years, I didn't show any symptoms, but then later in Canada, I started having symptoms. I had a few psychotic episodes and uh, a lot of screaming um, out of control. And um, that was when I realized that there was something seriously wrong with me. And people, my family, they knew... um, I could see it in their eyes. They knew why this was happening. They knew this had to do with the prison and what had happened. And when I was released, nobody asked me what happened to you. Nobody said, do you want to talk about it? Everybody just wanted to move on, wanted to move it behind them. And that caused a lot of problems in my family because we never talked about anything but the weather. And everybody was always afraid they would say the wrong thing. They would, you know, so you're always avoiding, you know, you're always on guard. You're always worried you're going to say the wrong thing. So once um, I started having the episodes, um, still my family, they avoided me like the plague. I would never have the question, why did you scream? What happened to you? What's wrong with you? Never. So, Marina, since you weren't able to talk to your family or friends about this horrific incident, uh, it sounds like you then turned to writing uh, your first book called The Prisoner of Tehran as a way of healing. That was when I started having flashbacks. Then I thought, okay, if I um, publish the book, it's going to be all good, and I'm going to go get the dog and just be a normal person. And um, it didn't happen. Then when I was writing the second book, I got in touch with Dr. Donald Payne, who is um, a well-known psychiatrist here, and he has worked with hundreds of victims of torture. And then through talking to him, I realized that the symptoms I'm having are not unusual at all. They're actually very common. He taught me um, to deal with, with the flashbacks and how to manage them. Victims of torture will often say that it's hard for them to relate to people, that they feel aloof, they're distrustful, they're suspicious of strangers. Uh, Marina, do you feel this way? I don't mistrust people, but still I believe it is my duty because I survived and my friends died, many of them. They're buried in mass graves. So my job is to make sure that their experience and my experience, experience is known understood as much as possible 
and remembered. You know, I bet they're glad that you lived to tell the story. Marina, is the emotional pain of torture worse than the than the physical pain? No. <laughs> when you are when you are being tortured, that is beyond anything. But the problem with the emotional pain is that it never goes away. I'll carry the emotional part with me for the rest of my life, but I'm not going to through that, go through that ever again. Is the counseling and psychotherapy helpful in helping you deal with the emotional aspects of having been tortured? It has been helpful. I'm a very, very functional person. But, you know, people expect that when you go see a psychiatrist, you know, they give you a pill or they have, you have therapy and then you're going to be all good. There is no such thing as closure. Closure is the most stupid word in the English dictionary. All you learn is to manage it. That something is the trauma, is the pain, is the guilt, and all of that. It does not go away. We we talked to Dr. Asgari earlier about certain medications that can be helpful in treating post-traumatic stress disorder. Have you used any medicines? Absolutely nothing. And how about your faith? Uh, Definitely. You know, as a Christian, I thought we are the only religion that follow a man who was tortured and executed, and tortured brutally, I wouldn't have wanted to be crucified. So I think that was what it did for me. I thought, you know, I believe um, that God came here on the planet, and he became just like me, and he was tortured, uh, worse than I have been tortured, and he was executed in a worse way than I could ever imagine what the pain of death can be. So um, I thought, you know what, if he has done it, he gets it. He gets it. And just that made me feel just not alone. Even now, I feel, I feel not alone. And I feel that you have absolutely connected with me and our listeners. Marina, thank you very much for sharing your extraordinary story with us today on Aches and Gains. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, Endo Pharmaceuticals, Pentec Health, and Boston Scientific. For live online listening to Aches and Gains, please go to paulchristomd.com. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Christo, especially for upcoming shows, please email him at achesandgains at gmail.com. That's achesandgains at gmail.com. Here's an email from Ralph in Washington, D.C. I've had the diagnosis of thoracic outlet syndrome for approximately 20 years. It causes swelling and stiffness in my hands and forearms upon awakening, weakness in both hands, no overhead reaching without causing dizziness, and pain at the base of my neck with headaches that run into my scalp and forward to my temples and above my eyes. I've had my first rib partially removed. I've also tried four separate physical therapists, and two surgeons have recommended surgery again. A blood study shows that my venous blood return is impinged. What can I do? Ralph, if you have vast vascular thoracic outlet syndrome, which is when the venous blood flow is impaired, then many patients will have a chest x-ray, duplex ultrasound, and even venography to further document and confirm the problem. A lot of patients will have arm pain with activity, 
arm and hand swelling, blue discoloration of the arm or hand, and dilated veins in the shoulder or chest area. You may be a candidate for repeat first rib resection and removal of part of the anterior scalene muscle. If you have a clot in the vein, then surgeons use blood thinners before and after surgery as part of treatment. I think surgery depends on how significant the blood flow reduction is, so have a frank discussion with one of the surgeons to determine likelihood of success and any problems you may encounter if you don't have another surgery. The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its content. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. Follow us on Twitter at DRPaulCristo and like us on Facebook, Aches and Gains. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulcristomd.com. That's paulcristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Tom Blair and Ty Ford. Elsa Langford is the technical consultant and engineer. Dr. Paul Christo is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.